Hello, everyone, and welcome to Of Slippers and Spindles. I'm Cassie. And I'm Drew. How, how are you, Cassie? Uh, I'm doing okay. It's yeah. been kind of a rough few days, I think, for both of us. We're not going to get into too much of it, but we both are dealing with some loss in our lives, yeah. um, which has been tricky to navigate, especially during COVID. Yeah. It's just a hard thing to talk about. I asked you before we started, how are you doing? And you said, I'm okay until someone asks me that question. And I feel that. Um, we we want to mention the passing of Natalie DeSalle Reed, who was Minerva in Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella. Um, we had so much fun talking about that movie and she was so good in it and she was an amazing actress and um, obviously we're sad that the world has lost her and then you know like you said we both experienced some very personal losses this week as well and so we're both kind of just in a a weird place right now but um my friend who passed away was one of my frequent stage managers for my shows. Mm. And as she would say, the show must go on. And so we're going to keep plugging ahead and yeah, because we're going to do this podcast because that's what we do. Yeah, because the podcast is a source of joy for us. It's a place for us to escape for an hour or two hours like last week. And um, the whole idea behind this podcast for me was to give myself something fun to do during these coronavirus, COVID-19, horrible times. So I'm going to lean on that right now. Absolutely. But if we uh, come across as a little less energetic or a little more lackluster than usual, um, that's probably has a decent amount to do with it. Yeah. But, but also... We're going to... This one was. This one was not weird. A whole lot to get excited about yeah, with this book. Yeah. Well, so let's. So let's dive in. I. Let's dive in. <laughs> so this week we're here to talk about Beast by Donna Jo Napoli. This book came out in 2000. This is our second Donna Jo Napoli book that we are covering, and this is an interesting one. It is. She says in her author's note that one of the the popular versions of the story was recorded by Charles Lamb in 1811. Mm -hmm. um, And it is an epic poem. He names the beast man Prince Erasmus and says that he's from Persia. Mm -hmm. And so she used that version of the story to build her adaptation around. Yeah, which is really cool. And I'm kind of jealous. I'm jealous that she got there. And and uh, I mean, even if you don't know that part of the story of her inspiration, like just the name Erasmin is such a great name for the beast. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So this book starts in Persia and we we meet Prince Erasmin, who is the... Scholar Prince is what he calls himself. And he's a little different from the beasts, the princes that we normally see, because usually we see princes who are extremely arrogant and 
Erasmin isn't necessarily super arrogant. He is, but it, it comes across in different ways. It doesn't necessarily come across the same way that a beast normally does with that attitude of like, I'm better than everybody around sure, me. Sure, yeah. With him, it's it's very much about self-sufficiency. It's how dare you try to offer me help. Mm. I know what I'm doing. I'm a prince. So the story opens with the day of sacrifice. And as the prince and as a pilgrim who just completed his pilgrimage to Mecca, he's expected to take part in the sacrifice, but he has always been uncomfortable around the death of animals. He doesn't like to hunt. He doesn't like participating in the sacrifice um, where they have to sacrifice a camel and some sheep. And mm-hmm. so knowing that his mother, when she's talking to him at the beginning of this day of sacrifice, she says, um, I will send you my strength while you're you're fulfilling your role in this uh, ritual. And his response to that inwardly is, I don't need the strength of my mother. I'm not a child. I don't need you to send me you know, your strength. Yeah. I am strong enough on my own. So he does have a sort of inherent arrogance about sure. like, yeah, not yeah. asking for help and always like he can do it on his own. It's a different sort than we see typically yes. from the beast, but I think yes. that quality is still there. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Um, because typically we see princes who are like vain, I guess, is what I would think yeah. of as the the starting place for the prince in most retellings. And that's not necessarily what's going on with Erasmus. He's not obsessed with his own beauty in any way. No, no, not at all. So Erasmus. He goes to help prepare the camel that's going to be sacrificed. He's helping his servant and friend, Kiyumars. And they discover that this camel has been defiled. There's a, a scar and and fat from the camel has been removed, which is, um, you know, forbidden to, to do that to a living animal. And so Erasmus has to make a decision about, are we going to continue with this sacrifice or not because this is the only camel that has been prepared and he ultimately decides that yes they are going to continue with this camel and that is his like fatal mistake here it is but i think it's it's presented in a really interesting way because the book is in first person mm-hmm. so we are in erasmus's head so we see his thought process and we see him make, you know, these arguments about why he's deciding this way. He doesn't want the servant to get in trouble um, for not catching the scar before this day. He doesn't want anyone else to get in trouble for them not having another animal. He thinks about, you know, this animal's meat will go to serve the poor and make Mm -hmm. sure that they're healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, God is a merciful God, and so he'd be willing to forgive this. And all of these are really good arguments, but the core that's like guiding his decision isn't really any of these considerations it's that he doesn't want to go consult someone and ask for help yes he can't remember exactly what the teachings say yes and he thinks that to go ask a priest for guidance would be a show of weakness Mm -hmm. and so instead Mm -hmm. he's going to make this decision and then present all these justifications for it and i think that's really interesting because those would be good reasons if those were his only reasons. Sure. 
But I think his punishment comes from, again, that arrogance of, I refuse to ask for help. Yeah. He talks about, like, I'm the prince. I should know it would be humiliating to to go ask. Whereas if he had, if he had just taken the time to be humble and figure out what the right thing to do in this situation is, he would not end up in the circumstances that he finds himself. Yeah. But the camel is sacrificed, and mm-hmm. uh, as he's you know making his way back to his rooms, he's confronted by this beautiful servant woman who tries to seduce him, and he... Well, first he is confronted by the reflection of the camel. Right, the reflection of the camel in the pool. Yes, the camel tells him that he's going to be killed by his father tomorrow. And so he... He he goes to his father and he ends up telling his father about this and they make this plan to stay in separate rooms the whole day so that they won't, uh, you know, this won't come true because tomorrow is supposed to be the big hunting day and his father, the Shah, is going to kill a lion. And so, yes, then on his way back to his room, that's when this enchantress, seductress, demonic fairy. woman, fairy, yeah. yes, appears. Um, she catches him and she she knows that they've made these plans and they're good plans for Mm -hmm. affording this curse. I I appreciated that the first thing he did was go tell his father (laughs) about this and not try to do the whole like, well, I'll just on my own figure it out. And so he he makes his father promise that no matter what happens from sunup to sundown, his father will not kill a man. Yeah. Which unfortunately of course When he gets caught by the evil fairy, she transforms him into a lion. He does not make it to his rooms, and they are hunting lions. Surprise, surprise. that is how, because you can't thwart a curse. You can't thwart a prophecy. You can't thwart a curse. But they do ultimately uh, thwart the curse, because Erasmin, he wakes up the next morning in the Rose Garden. He's now a lion, and he escapes into the hunting park. And they they have released lionesses for them to hunt because we're in Persia. Lions aren't native to Persia. I don't believe they've been brought in from India. And he experiences some time with the lionesses and then the hunters come and he escapes by hiding in this pigeon tower. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting to read the description about his day as a lion. Mm-hmm. Donna Jo Napoli never shies away from showing things that are a little bit more gritty and graphic. Yes. So we get very intense descriptions of eating this gazelle that's been killed mm-hmm. and like the taste of blood in his mouth. And we get very intense descriptions of mating with one of the lionesses. And as these things are happening, you see the man inside the beast at war with the beast because Erasmus is a devout Muslim. He follows the pillars of Islam. You know, it's, it's one of the most important aspects of his character is his faith. And here he is in the body of a lion with the instincts of a lion and the needs of a lion breaking these central tenets of his faith because he can't control the monstrous body that he's in. And I thought that was a really interesting way to take this story because in most versions of Beauty and the Beast, 
the beast that we see is like this man creature hybrid. Mm-hmm. Whereas he is a lion. He is entirely a lion. Yeah. And even when it's a man creature hybrid, like he's essentially a man. He just looks like a, a beast. You know, he still can walk and talk and, you know, behave like a human being. He's just in the body of a monster. And Erasmus is truly a lion. He he cannot speak. Mm-mm. Even when we eventually get to a place where he's interacting with Belle and her father, he ends up communicating with them by writing in the dirt with his paw, with his, like, nails. But this beast is truly, I mean, he's truly a lion. He can't, he can't speak. Yeah, and so I thought that was a really interesting way to take this and to have that, like line between what is human and what is beastly or monstrous Mm -hmm. be much more literal in this text and that the fight within him is a fight against the urges of the lion that he is horrified by but that are necessary yeah so he can't avoid eating blood because he's a lion and and lions (laughs) aren't built to be herbivores like (laughs) they have to just go eat grass he can't he has to eat if he's going to survive. He has to eat if he's going to sustain himself. He manages to survive the hunt, though. Mm-hmm. But he knows that he won't be safe if he stays on the grounds. Eventually, he will be hunted. He will be killed. There is a moment where his father finds him and tries to strangle him with his bare hands because apparently that's mm-hmm. how you become a true, powerful king of Persia. Yeah, I I didn't fully understand that. I felt like I was missing. I didn't know if I had missed it in the text or if it wasn't there, but it felt like I was missing a piece of information about the history of the Shah, whether it's this specific Shah or, you know, a Shah in general and their relationship with lions. I think there's like a legend of a very powerful king of Persia who Mm -hmm. strangled a lion with his bare hands. And so if you can follow in the footsteps... Yeah, okay. It's like a that's superstition, is my understanding of it. Yeah, that's that's the sense I got, but I felt like I would have liked like a little more clarification about yeah. why a lion and why <laughs> strangle it with your bare hands. Right. But Erasmus <laughs> manages to get away from his father um, without being hurt, without hurting his father. And he knows that the curse can be undone by the love of a woman, but he also knows that there's no way a woman is going to love him. Right. And so because he's a lion. <laughs> he decides he decides, okay, well then I'll just I'll be a lion. I'll go live as a lion. I'll make my mm-hmm. way into India. I'll find a pride and that will just be my life from here on out. Because there's no other hope for me. Right. So he does. He he travels to India and this is not a successful pilgrimage. He he meets these other prides, he meets these other lions, and they are not accepting of him at all. So he, I mean, he's not there very long. And he, I mean, he's there a long time in terms of like time in a calendar year. But in the book itself, it's like a chapter because he quickly realizes that this is not going to work. And so he, he returns to Persia to um, pick up this book that his mother had left for him. It's a book of poetry and roses. And so he he returns to get the book 
and decides to, he actually reads it and decides to travel to France because previously he's talked about how this Frenchman came and visited and bragged about how French roses are the best roses in the world. And he loves roses. He has this whole rose garden in Persia. And so he decides to travel to France. Yeah. So then we get the portion of the novel where he's traveling to France. And like, I, I get that he is a human mind in the body of a lion. But I do have to say that it was a little hard for me to accept that at no point in the journey from Persia to France did anybody see this lion and want to do something about it. <laughs> I uh, I mean, the portion of the book where he's traveling to France is a chapter called Two Years, I think. And it's literally like a two-year period and it, like each season is a paragraph. So... I can imagine that maybe that did happen and we just didn't hear about it. But you'd think if it did happen, we would hear about it. So it does seem odd. Um, I think what does it for me is when he's like, so so once he's in France, he moves into this abandoned castle. And this castle is believed to be haunted by the local village. And this is where I'm like, okay, no one figured out that there's a lion living in this castle. Yeah. Like, I think the castle was believed to be haunted before Erasmus got there. Yes, that's right. So he's just kind of playing Phantom whenever anybody, like, shows up there. He'll knock things over and he'll growl and he'll scare them away. But, yeah, he has this plan when he gets to France that he's going to build this sanctuary and he's going to find a girl who loves roses fall in love with the rose garden that he's building first and then that will extend to whoever made the rose garden and so the love will extend to him and that will break the curse but like they describe all of these things that he does to build this rose garden like he goes and steals rose bushes from people's gardens yes (laughs) and plants them and like takes care of them and like mulches the beds and i'm like you're a lion you don't have thumbs how are you doing this i read this and i was like i cannot wait to hear cassie rant about how ridiculous it is that this lion is planting roses listen i get it he's got a human mind in a lion's body and so he's capable of like thinking and planning and finding workarounds for his physical limitations but still like i have a really hard time picturing a lion trotting down the street in the dead of night with a rose bush in his mouth and nobody sees anything that part i can buy it's the part where he's like spreading the roots in the ground like you don't have opposable thumbs yeah that too not to mention the part that we haven't gotten to yet where he climbs down a person's chimney. I think that might take the cake for me. <laughs> yeah, that one that one was also um, an know, interesting when I, choice. As you read it, it doesn't feel that absurd. Just Napoli's writing style is so gritty and realistic that these things you're like, it, it, it's obviously far-fetched, but it doesn't feel as you're reading it like, what is this wacky, insane thing? It doesn't feel no, like No, it's only when you theater. stop to think about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, like, 
when he's trying to steal flour and yeast by like taking mouthfuls out of a sack and yeah. spitting them into like into this sack. blanket to be a knapsack. How oh does any of that actually make it back to the castle? No. Oh, but uh, obviously this is a Beauty and the Beast story. So <laughs> eventually, a man arrives in the garden, and everything is very. It's portrayed as like the realistic version of Beauty and the Beast. So when Belle's father arrives, he isn't like presented with all this magical food and the doors magically open. It's he goes into the kitchen and he finds food. He builds up a fire and Erasmus very excited about the fire because he hasn't been warmed by a fire in how many years. So like the man is putting this all together for himself after he's arrived here in the snowstorm. But then he he goes, he sees the rose, he picks the rose, like that whole story. Of but course. in this one, it's Erasmus going like, no, I've worked so hard to get mm-hmm. those rose bushes yeah, so that I can get a girl to fall in love with me and you're thwarting my plan. And so the farmer, farmer, uh, the merchant, merchant. <laughs> you know, is, is horrified and terrified. And then he starts, Erasmus starts writing in the dirt with his claw, mm-hmm. which freaks out the merchant even more and he thinks he's dealing with a demon because how else would this lion be able to communicate with him and he tells the whole story and so the beast asks for his youngest daughter and the and Erasmus thinks that it's a child yes so yes. the description that he gets from the merchant about this like oh it's my youngest child and she's just she's very silly she's very foolish he is imagining a human child and he's like that's yes. perfect yeah little girls love cats I can be a cat. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So he thinks if I get this little girl to come here and like fall in love with me as her playmate, that eventually as she grows up, that will blossom into something else and that will break the curse. So these are his thoughts. Again, it doesn't feel as insane as it sounds when you're reading the book. So so he prepares for this child's arrival by going to town and yes he breaks into the bakery by climbing down the chimney with his back against one wall and his paws against the other wall and he's climbing down but he like loses control and falls and lands in the back of an oven and then uh eventually he's like using his mouth to steal flour and sugar and all this stuff and then he later he he steals candles from a family that's making candles outside and he he just wants to have all this stuff prepared for her when she arrives. So she's not arriving to an empty, dirty castle. Yeah. And he rescues this runt Aww. fox kit yeah. and takes the fox kit home yes. so that she can have a little pet. Choo-choo. Choo-choo the fox. I love choo-choo. And- yeah, it's a whole thing. Like, there's this description about he cleans a room with his tongue, and it's, yes. it's yeah, it's, that was weird. It's odd, um, but okay, it's fine. It's yeah. feeding the beast, whatever. It's okay. Yeah. I'm here for it. Yeah. Um, but then Belle gets there and is not mm-hmm. a child. Um, yes, and he's like, okay, already my plan is thwarted. Mm-hmm. And father just drops her off outside. Yeah. <laughs> Like here you go, I'm gone. Bye. Yeah, he hears he hears them arrive. They're there for like thirty seconds, and then father's gone. Yeah, and so 
she comes in and she explores and he stays hidden. Mm-hmm. So she gets upstairs and she finds the fox cub and she thinks that this was the beast that her father yes. was afraid of. Yes. And Erasmus gets so jealous about yeah. the attention that she's giving the fox cub that he picks up the cub in his mouth and like flings him across the room. Yeah. Well, they're in the garden because Erasmus like leaves and comes back and sees her like running around the garden. And that's where he like throws Tutu up in the air and Tutu lands like on his his leg and like sprains his leg and it's permanently he has like a limp for the rest of the book. That's like great. Good job. Way to make a first impression, my dude. Yes, this is Belle's first impression of him. Like, your whole goal here is to make this person fall in love with you. And the first thing you do is attack her pet that you gave her. <laughs> yes. What is and that? And she's, like, super apologetic. She's like, I didn't know that he was yours. Like, it's it's so interesting. Yes. And so this is their first meeting. So she introduces herself as Belle. Her name is actually Belle. And asks for his name, and he just says no questions and leaves her. Again, not a great first impression. And then as they explore and describe the next few days, Erasmus finds Belle kind of boring. Like, she's very practical. And eventually we'll learn that it's because she's kind of living in fear here. Like, she plants the vegetable garden, but pays no attention to his beautiful flowers. And so he's like, what the heck? Like, she she only cares about veggies. Like, my whole plan here is for her to fall in love with the beauty that I have cultivated. And eventually we learn that it's because the roses are the whole reason she's there. Yeah, she Father assumed a rose, and so she's like, forbidden. Obviously, yeah, the rose garden is forbidden. So why would I go there? So at first he finds her very boring. But eventually what really brings them together is, of course, reading. Yeah, so there's, I assume that there's this leftover library in this palace from when it was inhabited. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. learn early on that Erasmus can speak like five languages because he's an mm-hmm. educated prince. And so he speaks Latin, he speaks French, he speaks Arabic and Persian. And he keeps finding these books for her to read to him. He can mm-hmm. read on his own, but it's hard. Yes, it goes very slowly. Yeah, and so he keeps pulling, like, these Greek epics and giving them to her to read. And in his inner monologue, he's like, this is my story. Why don't you understand? I'm picking this for you to read so that you'll understand who I am and what happened to me. And I'm like, dude, that's a long shot at best. Yeah. It's a a stretch. It's a stretch. Yeah. Um, And, And eventually she actually presents him with her journal. This is how we get the rest of the story and we learn about Belle and her sisters and her brothers and the whole fall from grace. We learn all of that through exposition as he reads her journal, since we are seeing the story from his perspective and not hers. And then when when he's done reading, he goes outside and Belle mounts him and and she rides him. Like, and he's like, oh, now I'm nothing but like transportation to her. But the thing is, she was like, I need these things that we can't have get here. So I need to be able to go to town. Mm-hmm. And he like gives her this thing to sell. But like, it's 
a really long distance yes. to town. And so it, it was so weird because he was like, oh, yes, of course, she will ride me and I will take her to town. And then as soon as she does that, he's like, oh, am I just a pack animal to her? And I'm like, dude, <laughs> this was your idea. Yeah. <laughs> he's uh. very just like mood swings, man. And it's not that I don't understand. His I mean, life got turned fairness, upside down. He's a lion. Yeah. I'd be moody. I get it. Their relationship, though, is very interesting because they bond over books like many Beauty and the Beast versions do. But they also bond over prayer mm-hmm. because we find out – so Erasmus does his prayers very consistently and we eventually find out that Belle has been watching him through her window. So she eventually joins him. And although they're praying to different gods, Erasmus' faith says that there is only one god and everyone is just praying to him using different means. So they they bond through their religion as well, which I thought was a really interesting layer because religion is so important to Erasmus through the whole book. It's cool the way that she brings that in full circle with Belle. Yeah, and I really, really liked the way that she captured the tenets of Islam Mm -hmm. and she presented Mm -hmm. the Muslim faith as very much like all other faiths are part of this. All other faiths tie into this. And it talks about this belief in – of course, Muhammad the prophet, but also in Jesus the prophet. Like, he is a figure mm-hmm. in Islam. And I I really like that moment between him and Belle when she asks, are you praying to your God? And his response that he scratches in the dirt is, only one God. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, there is only one God. And I thought that was like I don't a really know if nice she moment. means it the same way. I don't know but- if she does either, but it was a nice moment for me. Um, for sure. And so, yeah, so they, they bond over that. He takes her to the village. She gets the stuff that she needs. And they're they're happy. They're like, they've built this life together. Mm-hmm. But she's, she's worried about her father, of course, as per the story. Of course. Mm-hmm. She sent him a letter when they were in town. Yes. And she never hears back. And so she reveals this to the beast because Erasmus saw her writing this letter, but she took it to town with him and he never knew what it was. And so she does eventually reveal, yes, that the letter was for her father and she hasn't heard from him and she's really worried. And so Erasmus gives her three weeks because he gave her father three weeks to bring her to him. So he knows that she is able to travel. He doesn't know how far her home is, but she can obviously yeah. travel there and make it back in three weeks. He gives so her that's that why that's the time, time limit, limit. And she promises to return. But what I like about this because I said last week in our discussion of Beastly that one of the things that adaptations need to do, I feel, for a modern audience is take away that promise to return. And I think it works here because he doesn't expect her mm-hmm. to return. Like, he says three weeks, she says she'll come back, but he yes, doesn't yeah. believe that she's going to. He thinks that that she's gone. He hopes she will. He prepares as if she will. But then but... she doesn't. And... And so we have, again, from the original story, him just kind of giving up and mm-hmm. lying down in the garden waiting to die. But I buy it here. I know. I do, too. I think it's because we're in his head. I think yeah. that helps. 
And it doesn't feel sulky to me. It feels yeah. very much like I have been living this life for so long. I have tried to find contentment and happiness in so many ways. And it just, he feels exhausted. And I yeah. think from the description, I get the sense of him sitting there going, I can't do this again. I don't have the energy to go through this again. So if it's not going to be Belle, it's not going to be anyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If if this didn't work, what possibly could? I, I just feel like he's tired. Like he's exhausted yeah. and he's tired and that's why he's going to lay down in the garden until he dies. Yeah. And I buy it yeah. here. It didn't bother me at all the way that it bothers me in the original story. And uh, uh, until that point, while she's gone, he like prepares for her return by rearranging the gardens and he like uproots fruit trees which again doesn't make any sense but that's what he's doing and he Maybe rearranges Choo-choo the helps. flowers around them uh, yeah well choo-choo does uh dig like a tunnel in the garden and that's what he finds and that's where he ultimately ends up that's where he lays down to to give up and of course per the story as he's given up bell returns Yes, and she comes back and she begs him not to die and she says that she loves him and he transforms back into a prince and a human and then the book ends with possibly the most abrupt ending I've ever read in a novel in my life. This is my biggest issue with this book because he transforms and two sentences later the book is done. And I I feel cheated. I feel like yeah. I want more... I want from at the very least words exchanged between them. Yeah, yeah. The, because there aren't. I want I mean I want at least another chapter, if not more. Like I I I feel like the story is not done because I need to know how are their two faiths going to be reconciled? How are their two lives going to be reconciled? Are they going to go back to Persia? Like yeah, uh, there's like, too many questions for me at the end of this book for it to end here. And and here's here's my thing. I do not believe that an author needs to answer every question at the end of the I, book. I agree. I, I agree. I'm you know, with you. You can leave things up in the air. You can leave things open to interpretation. But I need to feel satisfied at yes. the end. Yeah. And I'm I'm not. I I got to the end of this and I was like, uh, but wait. Yeah, where's what? Am I missing a chapter? It It feels like, yeah. And this is not the only Donna Jo Napoli book where I have this complaint. Mm -hmm. I have this complaint with other works in her canon as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Her Rumpelstiltskin comes to mind. Sure. That also ends very abruptly. And I mean, listen, I've been guilty of that. I've been writing sometimes and been like, I'm done with this chapter. I don't want to write it anymore. And now it's done. I think it's especially troubling because Zell does not do this. Zell gives us this great epilogue that really explores, okay, what happens now? How do we resolve it? And it's not all tied up in a perfect pretty little bow. There are still things that, you know, are not fully answered. But... We don't get that here. And so I feel like because I know she can do it and she can do it really well, I feel cheated in the fact that I don't get it this time. And I think even if I just had an acknowledgement 
Mm. of the outstanding questions. Like even if in that last little paragraph he just said, I know that we will need to talk about these things. I know that we will need to have this conversation. But for right now, in this moment, it's enough to be together, you know, holding each other. I would have accepted that. Yeah, even just that acknowledgement of, I know there's more to this story, but we have to end it somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would have, I would have taken that for sure. But this feels like, this feels like it's telling me this is everything that you need. And I, I don't feel that way. I don't agree. Yeah. 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 I, I, I want a little bit more, just a little. Yeah. I was super surprised because usually we start these discussions by talking about our experiences with this book or with whatever book we're talking about. And I read this book when it, not when it first came out, I guess. But I remember discovering, oh, Donna Gianapoli did a Beauty and the Beast, and I was really excited about it. And I I feel like I remember enjoying it, but having this same feeling at the end, like feeling like the actual Beauty and the Beast story is not as much of the book as I would have liked it to have been. And I feel like that's an opinion I would expect teenage drew to have and adult drew to appreciate what's there but adult drew is just as frustrated yeah and i i don't remember when i read this for the first time but i know i read it for my book blog Mm -hmm. and i i know that i wrote about that same frustration about i because i talked in in my review about the ending is very abrupt i then also said that after reading it back to back with beauty I was a little bit more okay with it because I felt like Beauty's ending went on too long. Oh. <laughs> but like after the curse is broken went on too long. But with this one, I just yeah, it it's it's so abrupt that I forget about it in between readings and then I get mm. to the end and I'm like, oh right, that is how this ends and I don't like it. Yeah. And I think my other my other minor frustration with the book is she uses a lot of Arabic and Persian words in the story. And I don't mind that. Yeah. But she immediately translates all of them for you in the text. Yes. And I'm like, if you're going to do it, like if you're going to use words like souk and you're going to use words, you know, like that that are part of that culture, let context clues tell us what Uh they are. Uh But every single time she used one, there's a translation immediately following. Yes. And it... It interrupts the flow of the language so that it feels like, why why are we even using these words if it's going to stunt the sentences in this way? And I think she gets better at this because um, she does this in Bound as well, her Cinderella retelling. But she uses a lot fewer words from the language there. And she usually introduces a couple and then trusts that you'll remember them. And so there's only right. a few that are used consistently. Here it's a lot. It's a and lot. It's a lot. Yeah, and it it really only happens in the first third to half of the book. Once you're in France, you don't really deal with this yeah. anymore, which makes sense, but it makes that first third to half go really slowly because you're yeah. just stopping constantly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's look at our criteria. Yeah, let's do it. For this one. Okay. So our first criteria is that we are looking for a stronger, more capable beauty. So what's your opinion of this bell? 
I don't think she's very complex. I think she's very mm. surface level. But I don't mind that because it's not her story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a Rasmus story. Yeah, it's think- his story. He's the focus. I think I would still like a little bit more personality from her. Mm-hmm. It's not as egregious to me as it would be if she was the focal character. For me, this bell is Disney's bell. Like, there's... That's just what I imagine. And maybe it's because she's named Belle, but like there's nothing that's distinguishing her from any other form of beauty or Belle that I can think of. Yes. He is is much more three-dimensional. For sure. Especially when they're in a scene together. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that goes into our second criteria, which is the backstory for the prince and why is he cursed? And obviously that's what this whole book is about. Do you feel satisfied with that backstory? I I do. I again wish that there was a little bit more exploration of the flaw that got him cursed mm-hmm. in the first place and showing him overcoming that. Mm-hmm. But that's not really part of the curse itself. For if me, that makes sense, like yeah. the curse is just the love of a woman will set you free. And yeah. so there's not really a lot about learning to be humble. But. No, no. It's just the love of a woman will set you free. For me, I I find the part with the camel fascinating. I like that it's something new and something different. But then when we bring in the the wicked seductress character, I don't really care about her. She's in the book for two paragraphs. And yeah. so I would have preferred to have this curse from from the spirit of the camel that, you know, y- your father will kill you tomorrow. Let that just lead into him becoming a lion for the purpose of that curse being carried out, rather than adding this second part that, you know, like, your father will kill you tomorrow is separate from him becoming a lion. Whereas I would just have your father will kill you tomorrow be the reason that he becomes the lion. Does that make sense? It does. I kind of interpreted it that way, though, when I read it. Maybe it was just my brain filling in the gaps that I wanted to be filled in. I think that the seductress character wouldn't have appeared if he didn't have that curse placed upon him. It's like, oh, your father will kill you tomorrow. And so because of that, that's why the seductress ends up there. But I would have just cut the seductress and be like, your father will kill you tomorrow and you wake up as a lion. For me, like my interpretation when I was reading was that the spirit of the camel and the evil fairy were one and the same. Mm, Okay. I mean, that's very possible that I just missed And again, I don't know if that's just like my brain filled in that gap for me because it was a logical leap or if that's what the intention was. I don't. I'd have to go back and reread. But yeah, I think I think this point was done like it's a unique backstory for the prince, which I appreciate. Um, I think there are aspects of it that could have been done better. But overall, it was a satisfying sure. way to fill this criteria. Yeah. Um, next, we want the relationship between Beauty and the Beast to be built up a little more. I think that they have an interesting relationship. And I think that she does some new things with their relationship that other versions don't do. So I do appreciate that. I don't know if I fully buy in 
that by the end of this book, Beauty or Belle is confessing true romantic love for this lion. I yeah, I didn't don't know that I believe that either. And there's um, there's such an emphasis on like like it has to be romantic love or sexual love because at first he says, "Oh, well my mother loves me." And the the seductress demon is like, "Well, you know what type of love I mean. Like that does not count." So it's very yeah. clear that like whereas if we had left that open, Bell, I could buy Bell having you know, a different type of love for the beast. And that's ultimately what breaks the spell. Yeah. I think they, she started to take this in an interesting direction, but didn't carry it through as Mm -hmm. well as I wanted. Mm -hmm. And then our fourth criteria is we would like, I have a struggle on how to phrase this every week, but basically Villeneuve tries to give us this message of beauty comes in many forms or beauty comes from within, but we feel it fails. Do we feel that this version portrays that message or its own message in a stronger way? I don't know what the message is here. Yeah, I don't either. I still feel like it's better than the Villeneuve. It doesn't directly contradict itself, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um... But I don't think that there's, like, as clear a moral to kind of point to in this one. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. And then our last part of this discussion is, does this come before or after Disney? And how do we feel that influences its retelling? This comes uh, eight years after, nine years after Disney. And I don't know. Do you feel like it's influenced by Disney in any major way? I didn't really get... Yeah. I mean, obviously we call I her think, Belle, but... And I think it's because she's pulling more from this Charles Lamb mm-hmm. version of this story that does bring in the Persian element than she is, like, the straight French version. Mm-hmm. I think that contributes to not feeling like Disney was an influence on this story. She had another direction to go with it. Yeah. Do you have any further thoughts on Beast by Donna Napoli? I feel like I was just a little disappointed, but... Yeah, it's it's fine. Yeah. I was really looking forward to this one. Yeah. Having reread it now, I don't know that I'm going to keep my copy. I thought the same thing. I know. I might be putting it in my donation box. It might be time for someone else to read this story because yeah. I... Because it's like, I've read it three times now, and I don't know that I ever really need to read it again. Sure. Yeah. And that's kind of how I determine what stays in my collection. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's smart because you have a very large collection. I have many books. I mean, I, I thought I had a lot of books and then uh, I, have I see your background every week now. And wow, you got a lot of books. And that's not even I part of That's not even all of them. No, I got so. like almost 500. Oh my gosh. But yeah, I think this one, my husband's always encouraged me to find books that I can take off the shelf and get rid of so this might be the one maybe i'll do that for him maybe i'll yeah. do him that solid i mean i did book. not enjoy reading it you know yeah it was it's fine it's if fine. someone it's, wanted it's... to read it i wouldn't say like don't read it i'd just be like just you know don't expect the world from it yeah, yeah. So, i think it's worth reading once yes yeah once once is enough yeah all right well that is beast by donna Napoli. listen if we were a little down this week, don't worry, because next week we're going to be talking about a literal masterpiece. Uh, Yeah, one of my favorite 
Disney anythings, really in all of its iterations, honestly. Yeah. I love the animated movie. I love the stage musical. And I don't care what flack I get for this. I love the live action movie, too. I do, too. <laughs> Good. I know a lot of people hate fight. it. A lot of people hate it, but I, I enjoy it. But it has its flaws, certainly. But um, the animated movie is just absolutely beautiful. And the Broadway production is incredible. I was in the musical, and you worked backstage for it. I worked backstage. I worked so on we costume have crew. Some stories to tell from that. Of yep. course, I will dive into a little bit about the theme parks because you know your boy worked at BR Guest Restaurant for a very long time. So this one is personal for me. Yeah. So we will be back to our energetic, enthusiastic, two-hour-long recording selves. It will, Next week. I, I cannot imagine it's going to be shorter than two hours. Yeah. So. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to talk about Beast by Donna Drew Napoli or any of the other Beauty and the Beasts we've talked about this month, you know you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. Just search of Slippers and Spindles. Or you can email us at ofslippersandspindles at gmail.com. And until next time, friends. We'll see you next week. <laughs>